0: Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at ReturnToTheWord.com. Welcome to the broadcast ministry of Return to the Word with Pastor Mark Fontecchio, advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now, here is pastor and author, Mark Fontecchio.
1: On June the 2nd of 1952, Elizabeth II was crowned Queen of England in Westminster Abbey. The Archbishop of Canterbury presented her to the vast group of people that was gathered. And then he asked the crowd gathered, he said, "'Do you take Elizabeth to be your true "'and lawful liege lord?' And from the crowd gathered, came back a a single word from the British people. They said aye, because that's the British, that's what they do, aye. Well, she then took the coronation oath. She received a Bible, celebrated communion, and was seated on the coronation chair. She was anointed, clothed in a cloak of gold, given the orb, given the ring, given the scepter, which is the symbol of her power. Elizabeth was crowned with the glorious crown of St. Edward. The people pledged to honor her. The guns of London saluted. And the new Queen of England left the Abbey in this grand, grand procession. But from that day until now, Queen Elizabeth has not made a single decision that has affected the government of her kingdom. See, the prime minister of England and the members of the English parliament do all that. All that she does is sign their decisions into law because it's a constitutional monarchy, a monarchy where the king or the queen is a position only in name. And the real power, the real power in England is in the hands of the people. And it's that same kind of kingdom that the devil offered to the Lord in the wilderness it's the same kind of sovereignty that many we Christians today that they offer in their lives today. Letting God be sovereign creator, maybe even letting God be sovereign in salvation. But Lord, I can't trust you to make the decisions in my life of what is best for me. See, that's not the kind of monarch that God intends to have Well, the Lord Jesus Christ is coming. He's coming to receive his kingdom. And it's not going to be a constitutional monarchy. The Lord is coming and he is coming in power and glory to rule and to reign. Because God's ideal form of government for this world is an absolute monarchy with absolute power vested in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus is going to reign. Get used to that idea. Get used to the idea that Jesus Christ is going to rule and reign this world and then let that change how you live, because the day is coming when all the prophecies of the future reign of Jesus Christ on earth will be fulfilled literally, just as foretold in his word and the world that we know it is going to be transformed and God's purpose on earth is going to be accomplished. We are back this morning for our final study in Revelation 11. Would you find your way there in your Bibles with me? We start with verse 15 of Revelation 11, where it says in the text, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Let's take a minute to make sure that we're understanding the timing We are still looking at the seventh trumpet judgment of God in the tribulation. But let's look at two other passages real quick. Let's jump around for just a second. 1 Thessalonians 4, perhaps you know this text. 1 Thessalonians 4, speaking of the rapture of the church, the bride of Christ, it says... For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel. Notice this next part with me. It says, with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Key in on that last phrase, we shall always be with the Lord. Take that part to the bank. First Corinthians 15 also speaks of the rapture. It says this very similar words. It says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. I love preaching that in a church. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be all changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. What does it say at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. Now, it is a very common misunderstanding of Scripture to look at our text in Revelation 11 and to see the seventh trumpet with the very next subject matter in Revelation 11 referring to the kingdom of God and then equate that with the trumpet of God at the rapture from Paul's teaching in both of these passages. To think that the rapture is at the end of the tribulation because we see the word trumpet mentioned. It's an interpretive mistake. It's a misunderstanding of scripture. The seventh trumpet of revelation. I want you to notice the seventh trumpet of revelation. It announces the final phase of God's wrath. It announces the final phase of God's wrath, but it is definitely not the end of the tribulation. It's not the end. There will be all those bold judgments yet to come in revelation 16. Those have to be fulfilled. What is being announced in revelation is the beginning of the end. Because after God's final judgments of the tribulation are poured out on earth, then Christ will reign. This leads to a course of praise in heaven, because the day is coming when Christ will take up his kingdom. In 1 Corinthians 15 and in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul is talking about the bodily resurrection and the catching up of, of believers from the earth. Revelation 11 has nothing to do with the rapture. It's not in the text. It's not there. It's not about that. And the only similarity that you're going to see with those other passages is the mention of a trumpet. But read your Bible and you're going to notice something. Trumpets were used for a lot of things. They used trumpets for a lot of things. And so they will be in God's future and final plan for Israel. The rapture of the church, the second coming of Christ, are separate events that are described totally different in Scripture. When you compare them side by side, chart them out, they're totally different in Scripture. You see, at the rapture, The Bible describes that church age believers will be removed from earth to return to heaven with him. But what do we read about the second coming? We read something totally different. The Bible describes Christ coming with his armies of heaven. That sounds a little different. Armies of heaven. The Bible describes believers from the church age returning with him at the second coming. And it talks about there's going to be this intense, intense hardship on earth because of the death and destruction on earth from the trumpet and bowl judgments. And when Christ returns to the earth at his second coming, not only is he coming for battle with his armies, not only is he coming to do war, he will stay on earth. He's not going to leave again. He's going to stay to rule and to reign on earth And none of these things are mentioned in the Bible when it comes to the rapture. But let me give you just one example out of many that talks about the second coming. Matthew 24, it teaches us this. It says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with what? Power and great glory. You see, in the Old Testament, the trumpet signaled the appearance of God. Exodus 19 says this, It says, Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and the sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. When Paul talks about the last trumpet blast for the church at the rapture in both 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4, it's the last trumpet blast for you and I, for the church, for us. Why? Because after that, we're always going to be with the Lord. We don't need any more trumpets announcing that he's coming for us because we're always, always going to be with Jesus Christ. There'll be no more need for trumpets for us because his appearance to us shall never end. Praise be to God. In the Old Testament, God used the trumpet to announce to his people that he was at work. God was at work among them. God used the trumpet to summon his people to himself. And that is what he will do at the rapture of the church, call his bride home. Now, the seventh trumpet of Revelation, let's go back to our text with this. It introduces and includes the final period of God's wrath that will be poured out In the seven bold judgments, these judgments are going to reach up until Christ returned in his second coming. And so what we have in our text, what is being described in Revelation 11 is this time of judgment means that the kingdom of Christ has come. It's just around the corner. You know, it's like when you're traveling with little kids across the state of Alaska and you're getting close to the next gas station. And are we there yet? Yes, we're there. And you still got 30 miles to go. Well, that's kind of the idea. Okay, (laughs) that's kind of the idea. We still got the bold judgments, but it's just around the corner. So quit asking about the bathroom. The kingdom of Christ has come. It's just around the corner. There'll be no more waiting. The final bowl judgments. And then what? The glorious kingdom of God. That's what these loud voices in heaven are celebrating. Notice their words. They say the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign. How long? Forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Most churches today, saddens me, I've left churches over this, most churches today are teaching that the fulfillment of the kingdom of Christ is Jesus just ruling and reigning in your heart right now. Run from that teaching, because when a pastor says that, it shows he does not know God's revealed plan for the kingdom of God that is spoken of all throughout the Bible. Paul tells us in Colossians, yes, right now we are citizens of that coming kingdom, but that does not mean we're living in the kingdom right now. If this is as good as it's going to get, I have questions. I have questions. Now it is, it is hard. It is hard. Hear me on this, please. It's hard for some Christians to remember today that Jesus did not come the first time to make us safe on earth from every harm not why he came. He came to make us citizens of his future kingdom. That makes an all the difference, doesn't it, in how you live now. Only a coming physical kingdom on earth will fulfill the demands of scripture. Jesus is the king of righteousness. Jesus is the king of peace and throne next to the father in glory. And right now, This world is in bondage to Satan. Something fierce. You see it. You see it on the news. You see it on the TV. You see it at work. You see it wherever you are. You see a world that is in bondage to Satan. The kingdom of the world. And that's really how verse 15 should read. The kingdom of this world. The Greek is in the singular. The kingdom of this world. Satan's kingdom. That's where we live. That's where we live right now. Now I've mentioned this before that this is why today, you hear all this talk about a one-world government. This is why you hear all this talk, because that is the way the world is moving. And Jesus said in John 12 that Satan is the ruler of this world. This is why we turn on the news and wonder to ourselves, what is wrong with these people? What are they thinking? How do they get to this point? It's because Satan is running things. The world system is run by Satan. That is what Satan has been trying to do for a long time, since the beginning of time. Unite the world into a single kingdom that follows him. Isn't that what Genesis 11 is about? With the Tower of Babel, Satan wanted a world society where God, God would be excluded. Men planned the city. They planned that tower to show their unity. They had one language, but God came down and he put an end to it. Scattered men confused the languages. This is what mankind did after the flood of Noah. They tried to unite the world without God. I want you to notice something in Luke 4 with me. Notice the careful offer in Luke 4 that Satan made to Christ in the wilderness. It says there in Luke 4, Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him, what did he show him? All the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority I will give you and their glory. For this has been delivered to me and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. You see, Satan offered Jesus, the kingdoms of the world, their power, their glory. But the day is coming when there will be a great change of transfer of power on earth. Satan is going to lose his power. Christ will usher in the kingdom his kingdom on earth under the sovereign headship of God, the father, it will become the kingdom of our Lord, God, the father and Christ both being referenced here. But in order to make this transfer of power, this kingdom of darkness, it's got to be judged first. Satan's kingdom has to be judged first. It is one of the reasons for the tribulation. But look at the glorious words. Our Lord shall reign forever and ever. It's not that there's a millennial kingdom and then an eternal kingdom. One kingdom coming that will start in the millennium and then move on into eternity in the new heaven and the new earth. All of history is moving towards this time. The reign of Jesus Christ on earth. All of history is being driven towards it because Jesus Christ will reign It's described in Revelation here, if you've noticed, as already having happened because Christ's future reign is certain. His future reign is certain. The coronation of Christ will not come to pass until he returns to earth after the tribulation. But heaven's already singing about it, so you might as well too. Heaven's already viewing it as accomplished. This is the theme of heaven's wonderful song. It's the wonderful news in heaven. But the time of transition and judgment in the, in the earth will be something that this world has never seen before. Because Satan, oh Satan, he's fighting a losing battle. He is fighting a losing battle. And he won't give up without a struggle. He's had a hold. He's had a good time. He's had a hold on this earth for thousands and thousands of years. He's been ruling the roost, and he doesn't want to let go. There's coming a day when Christ will take control of the governments of this world. Then and only then will there be lasting peace on earth. One of the most fascinating things in Mexico, if you've ever been down there, are the Mayan ruins. And just take this city of Calakmul. It's one of the most influential parts of their empire, of the Mayan Empire. It was known as the kingdom of the snake. Now, that is why I would never want to live there, right there, the kingdom of the snake. Now, this city is now engulfed in a canopy of trees where the remains of more than 6,500 buildings are found. And this is the tallest building. It's, a, it's beautiful. It's a massive temple with steps that climb up 180 feet, about the height of a 15-story building. Now, this city has been abandoned for at least 1,000 years. 1,000 years, just sitting there in this forest, just sitting there. So why build cities and buildings so big? Why spend all the time to make them so beautiful? The reason is because all civilizations want exactly what they can't have, the conquest of time. So they build bigger, higher, grander, as if they could build their way out of mortality. You see people do the same thing today, but it never, ever, ever works. There's always a moment when the most populated cities with their markets, temples, palaces, and funeral tombs are all simply abandoned. It will happen to your home. It will happen to your home and everything that you built for yourself. All those hard chores that you're doing around your yard, it's going to disappear someday. It's happened throughout history where the sand of the deserts or the trees of the forest close in only for these cities to be forgotten. All nations come to an end. But there's one government that will stand the test of time. And Isaiah writes of it. He says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it, establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do what? Perform this. See, this is what heaven is celebrating in Revelation chapter 11. This is what we should celebrate. See, here's what I'm telling you it's easy. We all have problems. We all have problems. We all have problems we face. But what do we do? We lose sight of the big picture. We lose sight of the big picture that Jesus will one day rule the earth. One day, Jesus is going to sit on the throne of David and he's going to rule on this world. John tells us in verse 16 of Revelation and the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God. I love the reverence. I love the worship. When the seventh angel sounded his trumpet, heaven broke out in praise. The kingdom prophecies that span both the Old and New Testaments, they will be fulfilled. Now, we looked at the elders back when we were studying chapter 4 of Revelation. These elders would be from among the saints that have been judged before the tribulation. Hear that. Judged before the tribulation. Faithful church-age saints after the rapture chosen by God to worship and serve before the throne of God. The elders join the worship in heaven. They humble themselves before God. They will acknowledge his right to rule. Here is their expression of worship. And they're saying this, we give thanks. O Lord God almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Now, don't let this text confuse you that John writes these things as already accomplished. From our point of view, from our perspective, it's still future, but the purposes of God, they cannot change. The events he has planned Are certain. And so when we worship, we should praise God for what He will do. We already saw that there'll be a victory where the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. The elders will worship the Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come. So what is it saying? It's saying He has the power, He will reign on earth. Because in this vision that is teaching us what the Lord is going to do. There's a focus here. There's a focus here on the power of God and on his sovereignty and the idea in verse 17 that Christ is the one who is and who was and who is to come. It tells us that God has always existed. It's not like God just decided one day to exist. He's always existed and our kingdoms on earth just like the Mayans. Oh, they'll fade. The United States will fade away. This country will fade away. It's already fading away right now, isn't it? It's, it's going downhill. Our lives on earth will fade away. Our lives are short. Get used to that idea. But God has always been and will always be, which means he alone is the one who is able to have an endless rule on earth. You see, you got to be eternal if you want to have an eternal kingdom. God allows men to to control the earth now, but that day is coming to an end. In verse 18, it tells us that the nations will be angry, but the wrath of the lamb has come. The nations will be angry when God moves this world from the kingdom of men to the kingdom of God. When he judges the world with the trumpet and bowl judgments, Satan, Satan is finally going to be brought under control. He's going to be brought under control. And the nations of the earth will be brought into subjection to the kingdom of Christ You see, verse 18, it points us forward to the time when the dead are judged. Now, given the context, what is John talking about here? This is an interesting conversation. What is he looking at? Well, given the context, it cannot be the judgment seat of Christ for Christians that takes place after the rapture, because as we saw before in Revelation, the elders are from the church age. And here we already find them seated on the thrones already rewarded by God. It also cannot be the unbelievers because the unbelieving dead will not be raised again to face judgment until the great white throne judgment after the 1000 year reign of Christ and the nations of the earth once again rebel and Christ will defeat them a final time. There will be a final time of judgment when the loss of the earth will be raised for judgment by process of elimination. There's only certain amount of people left that this could be. The only group of believers that this could be in verse 18 of Revelation is a reference to the second coming of Christ when the tribulation saints and the Old Testament believers are judged, which fits perfectly with the context. Old Testament prophets, Old Testament saints, and tribulation saints who die in the tribulation, those who fear his name, both small and great. The elders in John's vision will thank the Lord for taking personal and direct control of this world. And we can do the same thing. Our worship should reflect this confidence that we have in God. When we sing and when we live for the Lord and when we pray, we should be grateful. We should look forward with this type of confidence that we actually believe that little Bible that we have in our hands, that we trust this, that there is a coming future kingdom, that even though Satan is still having fun in this world, God alone is sovereign over the nation's. See, nothing that Satan is able to do is outside the permissive will of God. Let's remember that when Christ returns to this earth at the second coming, God's people will worship him face to face. But now, now we live by faith. Now we live by trust, even when we don't always understand. I'll tell you one guy who had a tough time with this. I would think if I was him in 1870. British missionary Hudson Taylor, most of you guys have heard of him. He was, he was serving in China with his wife, Maria. She gave birth to their child, but within two weeks of giving birth, the child died. And Maria herself had little strength left in her at this point. And Hudson went to his wife and, and asked, darling, do you know that you're dying? And her response was, dying, do you think so? What makes you think that? Well, Hudson told her he could see it in her, and she responded again by saying, Can it be? I feel no pain. I only feel weariness. And then he told her, You're going home. Soon you're going to be with Jesus. There was silence for a moment. That's a tough conversation to have with your beloved wife. And then Maria whispered, She says, I'm so sorry. Well, Hudson was a little confused by this, and he Gently said, you're not sorry to go to be with Jesus. And Maria, she responded and said, oh, no, it's 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 not that. But it does grieve me to leave you alone at such a time. Yet he will be with you and he's going to meet all your needs. Another missionary that was present that day later said this, quote, I have never witnessed such a scene as Mrs. Taylor was breathing her last breath. Mr. Taylor knelt down and he committed her to the Lord And then he thanked God for having given her to him and for the 12 and a half years of happiness that they had together as a couple. I wonder how many of us could walk that road. I wonder how many of us could thank the Lord when we're going down such a tough road in life like this. Can we thank God for the good things he's given us even when we do not understand in the present what he's doing? The day is coming when the servants of God are going to be rewarded. So learn to rejoice in him. Learn to rejoice in his future plans. Our reward is going to come at the judgment seat of Christ. But for the Old Testament saints and for the tribulation saints, their reward is going to be at the second coming of Christ. Those who fear his name, both small and great. Lonely men of God who stand for him only to face their death for their faith in Christ during the dark days of the tribulation. They're going to have their work rewarded. Now, speaking about the wrath of God in the tribulation, it says that Christ is going to destroy those who destroy the earth. What is it talking about? Well, no wonder here the nations are going to be angry because Jesus is going to remove people from their positions of power. And the wording is that God is going to bring corruption, corruption to those who corrupt the earth. He's going to destroy those who pollute and destroy the earth with their sin. The government's that men have built, all these political structures that we fight for so much in this world and all these social structures that we hold on to, they're all going to be done away with and taken away. The very fabric of our societies will be taken away. Now we can look ahead to Revelation 19 where John tells us this about the second coming. He says in Revelation 19, and I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. See, at that time, the puppets of Satan, the beast and the false prophet, they're going to be thrown into the lake of fire. Their armies gathered against Christ will meet their total destruction. And in Matthew 25, a glorious passage in Matthew 25, you see those alive at the end of the tribulation gathered before the throne of Christ. And Christ divides them up between sheep who go into the kingdom of God on earth and unbelievers who are those goats, goats banished into the everlasting fire. Telling them in Matthew 25, he says this, then he will say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire, prepared for who the devil and his angels. These are the people alive at the end of the tribulation who are not present at the battle of Armageddon, not present at the battle of Armageddon. Christ is going to destroy those who have destroyed this earth with their sin. And then our final verse in Revelation. Let's not forget about it because it's a pretty cool little verse. It says in verse 19, then the temple of God was opened in heaven and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake and great hail. In the beginning of chapter 11, John was told, if you remember, to measure the temple of God on earth during the tribulation. At the end of the chapter, John returned to a temple, but not the temple on earth. This time it was to the temple of God in heaven. This temple of heaven indicates unbroken fellowship with God. Its doors remain open to all his people. And I've been thinking about all week long why this temple is described to us here. And I believe the answer is this. It is meant to show the immediate fellowship with God that the tribulation saints will have with God after the judgments of the tribulation. You know, one of the things people ask me the most about is, where's the Ark of the Covenant? Well, the Ark of the Covenant has been missing for 2,600 years, but here we see an ark, don't we? We see an ark in the temple of God in heaven. The Ark of the Covenant that was made by Moses was most likely destroyed by the Babylonians. I know I just ruined a lot of great, fascinating TV shows for you. But the Ark of the Covenant was most likely destroyed by the Babylonians when they looted and attacked Jerusalem. Jerusalem. The second temple of God on earth never had the ark. But John saw the ark of the covenant, didn't he? As a symbol of the holiness and justice of God, it is the basis for his wrath. See, the ark in the temple in heaven is another indicator. It's another indicator to us that God will once again deal with his nation, who? Israel. He's going to deal with Israel again to fulfill his covenant promises to them. Remember that the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament had the tablets of the Ten Commandments, a constant reminder of God's righteous standards. It was placed in the holiest room of the tabernacle sanctuary. And in the Old Testament, the presence of God dwelt between the cherubim on the Ark. And the Ark of God, the Ark of God, he represented his presence and it represented his protection for the nation And just as God protected and kept his promises to the people of the Old Testament, God is going to do the same thing for his people in the tribulation. In the Old Testament, underneath the Mosaic law, the holiest place in the temple was only to be accessed by the high priest. And the ark stood behind the veil in the Holy of Holies. God's glory rested on that ark. And God's law was within that ark, beautifully illustrating that he is a holy God and must deal righteously with sin. But he's also a faithful God who keeps his promises to his people. And the vision of the ark would have greatly encouraged God's suffering people in the first century who first received this book. It was a reminder to them, even though their temple didn't stand in Jerusalem, it was a reminder to them that God will fulfill his promises. God is going to reveal his glory. We can absolutely trust him. And here we see open access to his temple for those who believe with wrath and judgment against unbelievers. Now this judgment, this judgment is seen in the flashes of lightning, heard in the thunder, and seen in the earthquakes and the great hail. The results of this storm tell us that great judgment, it's about to fall. Great judgment from God is about to fall on the unregenerate people on earth. And when God reveals his righteousness, He unleashes his wrath against those who have rejected him. But for those of us reconciled to God by faith, we can know through his son that we have taken refuge in the mercy and grace of God through his blood, the blood of Jesus Christ. So we can enjoy that unhindered access to the throne of God. The temple of God during the tribulation is going to be defiled by the Antichrist, but the temple in heaven will reflect the righteousness And the majesty of God himself. Several years ago, this man, Bernard Ebers, he stood before a judge and he asked for mercy. He was the former CEO of WorldCom, which merged with MCI. Anybody old enough to remember MCI and and WorldCom? Well, here's what happened. See, he was the CEO of them, and he had been recently indicted for orchestrating an $11 billion, just a few pennies, $11 billion accounting fraud that shut down the telecommunications firm back in 2002. And as he stood before the judge, he sat there asking for mercy. His company's collapse represented the largest bankruptcy in U.S. history at the time. It was Devastating because there was about eighty thousand jobs, eighty thousand lives that were directly affected by those who worked for WorldCom. Yet he sat before the judge, asking for mercy. Speaking on behalf of his client, his defense attorney cited one hundred and sixty-nine letters. This guy's got friends. One hundred and sixty-nine letters from people who supported Evers. His attorney mentioned his client's physical heart condition. And his attorney mentioned the fact that over the years, Bernard Ebers had given a lot of money, tons of money, a great number of charitable gifts to people. And so now standing before the judge by himself, the 63-year-old man said, if you've lived some 60-odd years, if you have an unblemished record in life up until now, if you have endless numbers of people who attest to your goodness... Doesn't that count for something on this day? And the judge said, no. Sentenced to 25 years in the federal pen. Ebers died earlier this year. See, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns at his second coming, the same thing is going to happen to a lot of people. Billions. They will think that their good deeds how they lived should count for something. But Jesus warned about this, exactly this, in Matthew 7, where he said, Many will come to me in that day and say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Many will think their good deeds count for something, but Jesus is going to pound and say, No, they don't count for anything, nothing. And then he will banish them from his kingdom. Because eternal life does not come from good works. It comes by faith that Jesus Christ is who? The son of God who died and he rose again to pay your personal penalty for sin. Faith that he is the one who gives eternal life to those who trust him and him alone for it. The judgment of God is a good thing. The judgment of God is a good thing. It's something we should celebrate. It is something that should cause us to worship our God because we live in a vile world. We live in a world of injustice, of violence, of arrogance, and the thought that there's going to come a day where the wicked, unregenerate, and violent people of this world who hate God, who reject God, are put in their place while the poor and the weak are exalted in Christ and rewarded for living by faith. That's the best news there is. That's worth celebrating. That's worth worshiping our God for. You see, faced with a world in rebellion, a world filled with the people who reject him, a good and holy God must be a God of judgment. He must judge if he's holy. So put your trust in Christ for your eternal salvation. Put your trust in Christ for his plan, with his plan for your life. See, learn to live by faith, Christians. That's why you're here. You're learning to live by faith, learning to live with trust, learning to trust the Bible. His coming rule in this world is absolutely certain. And when we look to heaven, we see the model of how things should be done on earth. We look to the day when faith will become sight. We don't have to walk by faith because we're just going to look and see the Savior. Everything that's hidden will be revealed Knowing that the called out people of God given new life in Christ will have unlimited access to God because of his grace. See, we can approach God. Isn't that a wonderful thing? We can approach our God. We can worship our God. We can pray to him and we can live for him. Why? All because of his grace. Hebrews four sixteen. It tells us, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy Focus on the last part of the verse and find grace to help in time of need. There is grace at the throne of God for his people. There's grace there. There's a help in time of need. And I don't know what your need is this morning. I don't know everything you're going through in life. But let me encourage you to boldly approach God with that need through prayer. You've been given, as a Christian, you've been given unlimited access to the creator Take your need to Him in prayer. And then take confidence in His promise to return for us. Take hope from His promise to return for His own. And live for the day when His kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven.
0: Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687.